0: Our gracious Heavenly Father, truly, as the song says, you are the one that leads us. And we pray that even now, as we approach your holy word, that we might not approach it flippantly, whether as the proclaimer or as the listeners, that we might have soft and tender hearts ready to receive your word and appropriate it to our lives and to think deliberately and purposefully and prayerfully about how to apply your word. Father, thank you for the great comfort that you bring to your people through your word and for how clear it is. And so we pray that today we might be people who affirm these truths and that, Lord, uphold the truth of your word in the church, especially as it pertains to leadership. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We'll turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We're going to begin to look at Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 this morning. The title of this morning's message is Christ like shepherds. Christ like shepherds. Titus chapter 1 verse 5 says this, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. May the Lord bless the reading Of his word. I'm sure you would agree that our society as a whole does not place a high value on character. I was reminded of this reality as I was just reflecting after watching a popular movie from the 70s and 80s recently. Um, just uh, thinking about movie stars and those favorite actors of ours and how they are such great entertainers and very successful and very good at what they do, frankly. But what was so discouraging and sad for me was to begin to think about so much of... Uh, their private life, um, obviously, you always take those things with a grain of salt, what people say about people on television. But most of those things being true, I was just saddened to think about how their public persona is so different than who they are in private. Whether in terms of their own personal integrity, their families, their marriages, or their children, or even the way that they exploit other people to get what they want uh, within their own pursuit of success. That goes for music stars as well. All of the, our favorite uh, music musicians over the years, whether in the past or present. Um, I recently saw a, a clip of a documentary of the most successful performers and entertainers in the last 25, 30 years. And yes, these people were incredibly gifted and able. They certainly uh, go way beyond me. and far as, I don't have any a lick of mu- musical um, talent. I'll tell you that right now. But these people are flawless with regards to their own abilities to sing and to play music. And yet, when you start examining um, some of their private decisions and moral choices, it is sad to see how, again, there's a separation between who they are in public and who they are in private. And the decisions that they have made over the years. I was listening to a radio station the other day, checking up on the Dodgers, yes, again. It's been 30 years, did I not say this last week, 30 years, beloved, that we have not had a World Series uh, here in L.A., so the Dodgers are doing well. So I was checking up on how the Dodgers were doing, and the two radio guys were actually discussing um, an athlete that maybe some of you would be familiar with, and his middle name is Money money and the reason why is because this guy within his own um, sport is the champion and is considered one of the greatest if not the greatest in his particular sport and uh, he's made literally millions of dollars and of course these guys were going back and forth is he the greatest is he not the greatest and they concluded that he is the greatest but what was interesting is that at one point one of the radio guys alluded to the other guy about how yes this guy may be the greatest guy in terms of his sport Um, the greatest athlete to come out of there, but there there have been constant allegations of how he exploits people, and he robs from other people, and he's all about money. And he started talking about the guy's character. And without skipping a beat, the other guy said, Listen, I don't care about his private life. What we are talking here about is the the greatest such-and-such in the history of that particular sport. Who cares about what he does in his private life? And I thought to myself, Wow, that encapsulates it for us, doesn't it? The separation that our culture makes between somebody's public life and the private choices that they make. As long as they're successful and they're good performers and they're good entertainers, then that is good enough. I was in line getting uh, at a fast food place getting food for my family and there were two older gentlemen right behind me and they were talking for about five, six minutes about politics and they started talking about Bill Clinton, one of our past presidents. And from their perspective, Bill Clinton, as they're concluding, was one of the greatest presidents um, that has existed in the history of the nation. That's from their perspective, of course. And they talked about all of his accomplishments and all of the good things that Bill Clinton did for the nation of the U.S. But well, you know what struck me? Is that they never talked about his moral choices. They never talked about the scandal that he was in the midst of, his deception, and the fact that he um, was unfaithful to his wife. And you and I might ask ourselves, why? Why is it that people in our society don't care about character? What about character? Does it even matter to anyone who the person is anymore and not just their experiences and talents and abilities and and success and how much money they have accumulated through their particular um, craft here on this earth? It doesn't matter, beloved. The reality of it is Is as long as they are successful in the eyes of the world, it doesn't matter what kind of private life they live. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to highlight the lives of individuals because you and I are any, are any less sinners than they are. Were it not for the grace of God, you and I are just as capable of doing some of the things that these individuals have done in their corruption. In fact, some of us have done those things. And the Lord has saved us out of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God has been merciful to us. So as we look at the lives of people, it's not to um, point out the fact that they are beyond the grace of God. But simply I'm making the point that when you when you look at our world and our culture, there's such a an unhealthy separation between the person's character and their accomplishments, their abilities, their talents, and the toys that they have accumulated on this earth. And it's sad to see that. And yet, as we're learning in Titus chapter 1, that when it comes to leadership in the church, it is a completely different story, isn't it? The character of the man who is to lead in the church, elder, pastor, overseer, same office, the character of that man is utterly important and it is non-negotiable if he is to lead God's people. There is no separation, beloved. Between a man's ability, his gifting, his experience even, from who he is as far as his character goes and his moral choices in the church. He is to be a man of integrity. And we're going to see that here. A man of character. A man who is qualified. And this is why as Paul begins to give Titus instructions about establishing the churches on the island of Crete... He begins to tell Titus that he needs to appoint elders and look deliberately and purposefully for men who are qualified. Who are qualified men. He doesn't even get to the point of the man's gifting, if you will, until verse 9 when he begins to talk about the man's relationship to the Word of God. He deals with the man's character first and foremost. Let me remind you that these are not recommendations. These are not suggestions. In fact, look at Titus chapter 1 and verse 7. He says, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Um, Chapter uh, 3 of 1 Timothy, the parallel passage in verse 2, says that the overseer must be above reproach. Meaning that this is absolutely necessary. Non-negotiable. Irrefutable, if you will. This is the type of man that he must be. Also, These qualities must be true of the man in the present, not who he becomes after he is appointed to be an elder. Titus chapter 1 verse 6, notice there. He says, namely, if any man is present tense above reproach. Verse 7, for the overseer must be present tense above reproach. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2, the overseer must be present tense above reproach chapter 3 of first timothy verse 7 he must have present tense a good reputation with those outside the church this is the type of man that he must be in the present if he is to be considered to become an elder and this is the type of man that he is to continue to be if he is to remain an elder a man who is qualified why are these qualifications beloved so important in the church Well, that's because as we began to talk last week, leadership in the church is more about example than anything else. Sheep, look to the example of shepherds. Shepherds who are sinless? No. Shepherds who are perfect? No. But uh, shepherds who who filter the truth of God through their own lives first, and they struggle and, and wrestle by the grace of God to live a godly life consistent with what they teach and what comes out of their mouth. The sheep need to see those examples. This is the way that God has designed His church. The Apostle Paul understood this, that the sheep are to follow the example of leaders. He told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me, as I also am of Christ. Listen, every elder, pastor, overseer, should be able to say that to the To the flock despite his imperfections, despite his struggles, he should be able to say, follow my example, follow the pattern of my life as I follow Christ. Elders follow the example of Jesus so that the church has concrete, visible examples of Christ's likeness before them. That is what elders are called to, beloved, and it is a high calling, but it is a calling nevertheless that we must be obedient to in accordance with the Word of God. Now listen, as we look at these qualifications, maybe some of you are sitting here thinking, well, you know, Pastor, I'm not going to be going out for elder anytime soon, so I guess I get a free pass these next couple of Sundays, huh? As we're talking about elder qualifications, well, I encourage you and I exhort you not to tune me out these next couple of Sundays in particular because, listen, we must remember that these qualities must be true of every single person. Though not all all of us will be an elder, each of us are to strive for this type of character. Each of us are. And I would say for present and future elders, beginning with myself, these are really the, the starting point for those who are to be considered to come on as elders or those who are serving as elders in the church. They are weighty things. They are serious things, beloved. And they are things that we as an elder team need to continue to evaluate and assess with your help as well. That we might be the leaders that God has called us to be in His church. And I would say to you as a corporate body, including myself, that this here is the standard that you and I must affirm and uphold together as a collective body, as a church. Amen? This is what we need to uphold in the church. It's, they're not suggestions. They're non-negotiable. They're not refutable. They're irrefutable, if you will. And we must uphold them because it's the Word of God that we're talking about here. Now, as we turn to these qualifications, we're going to categorize these under three main headings. Okay? We're going to categorize these under the man's relationship to his family, the man's relationship to himself, and the man's relationship to the Word. His family... His relationship to himself, i.e. his character, and his relationship to the word. Let's look at the man's relationship to his family, first and foremost, okay? Paul says in verse 6, Namely, he says, these are the type of men you need to look for, Titus. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation and rebellion... Notice that Paul doesn't focus here first and foremost on the man's abilities, his experience, his accomplishments, but he focuses on this overarching qualification here, all-encompassing qualification that really provides the framework for the others, if you will, above reproach. That the man who is to be considered for the office of elder is to be above reproach. He repeats it again in verse 7, if you notice there. The overseer must be above reproach. 1st Timothy chapter 3 verse 2 the parallel passage to the Titus chapter 1 an overseer then must be above reproach the same is required of deacons in 1st Timothy chapter 3 verse 10 that deacons if they are to serve are to be are to do it if they are beyond reproach same idea and by the way the same is required of every believer beloved Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14 says do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So all Christians are to strive for this quality, and it is non-negotiable, the non-negotiable starting point for anyone who is to be considered to be a potential elder. So what does it mean? Because much has been written about what does what above reproach means. Well, I don't think it means that if you serve, if you were to serve as an elder, you are a perfect guy. That you're sinless, that you somehow transcended sin. I don't think he means that. We know every man is imperfect. If we were to expect, have that expectation, you should just fire every elder on the face of the planet, right, in every church, because no man can measure, measure up to the perfect standard. Who is the? It's only Jesus Christ who is the perfect shepherd of the church. I don't think he means that. I think what he means is a life not subject to indictment. What he means is, what he means with this is that when you look at this man's life and you scrutinize this man and you examine the life of this man, there is nothing that he can be found guilty of as a pattern that will discredit his ministry. He is a man who is free from reproach, irreproachable, some have translated this, blameless. Not found guilty as charged, if you will. John Calvin wrote this. By blameless, he does not mean someone who is free from every fault. For no such man could ever be found. But to one marred by no disgrace that could diminish his authority. He should be a man of unblemished reputation. I like that. I like that. This is the overarching, all-encompassing qualification, beloved, that we that those who are to serve as elders in the church are to be blameless or above, above reproach. And it is the framework for the rest of the qualifications that follow after here, that define what it means to be above reproach. And again, why is it so so important for a man to be irreproachable in the position of leadership in the church? Is it for self-exaltation? Is it to promote oneself? Is it to promote some system of godliness? No, not in and of itself. It is not for self-exaltation, but because the name of Christ and the church's witness, beloved, is at stake. That's why. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says that the overseer must have a good reputation with those outside the church. And then he says, so that he will not fall under reproach and the snare of the devil. In Titus chapter two verse ten, here in our in our context, after giving instructions to various members, including bond slaves, Paul says that bond slaves are to live a certain way, and all members of the church really, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Why do you adorn something? But to make it attractive, right? Well, our lives, beloved, our gospel-transformed lives, display the gospel display something of the glory of God, of the legitimacy and of the power of the gospel to change a life, to transform someone from darkness to light, to make someone who once lived for, for, for a destructive sin, now we want to live holy life set apart, honoring our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, walking in loving obedience to His commands. People need to see that in our lives, beloved. The testimony of the gospel in our lives from within, fleshing itself out in the way that we live, The choices that we make, the way that we speak, the pursuits that we engage in, the goals that we set for life, people need to see that. So this is the overarching, all-encompassing characteristic here, and now he gets more specific, okay? Because first, he says that this man must be blameless or above reproach with regards to his family relationships, namely his marriage and the conduct of his children, First of all, with regards to his marriage, notice what he says. He says that this man, verse 6, must be the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. 1 Timothy 3.2 says the same thing. The overseer must be the husband of one wife. Now, this is not saying that a candidate must be married. Paul, who was writing to Titus, was single. Titus, as far as we know, was most likely not married. The Lord Jesus Christ, the the greatest leader of them all, was single himself. What Paul is doing here is that he's addressing the norm, and this goes also for those who have children, as we will see. That if you have children, this is the way that your children ought to conduct themselves. He's addressing the norm here. Alexander Strack points out insightfully this, Quote, Paul did not say an elder must be a man who has a wife, but that an elder must be a one woman man, end quote. A one woman man. And we're going to see in a bit what that means. So this is not saying and could not mean that the man cannot be mar- uh, must be married. It is also not saying that a candidate cannot be remarried, we know that remarriage, uh, in the right circumstances is allowed in Scripture. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14. In certain, the right circumstances, uh, remarriage is allowed. So a, a remarried widower can be said to be the husband of one wife. Now you say, well, Pastor, that's an easy one. But what if a man, Remarried, having been divorced. What about that? Well, this opens up a can of worms, right? Opens up a can of worms. And there's no easy formula answer, beloved. A one-size-fits-all answer to that. Wisdom and prayerful consideration and and the church as a whole, with the elders leading charge must assess with wisdom and prayer and uh, that particular individual. I would say this. That most definitely if a man is divorced for sinful reasons such as infidelity that led to the divorce, clearly he cannot serve as an elder and should not serve as an elder. Okay. Pastor, what if an unbelieving spouse abandoned him? In other words, he had biblical grounds for divorce and and then he remarried. Or what if he was divorced before getting saved? I mean, why should a man be held accountable for um, his actions before coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, he was walking in darkness. He's simply uh, acting out his his corruption as an unbeliever. What about in cases like that? Or what about a man who was divorced a long time ago and he's no longer the same guy anymore? He's even repented of what he did at that time. And, and now he's a new man. Even if he divorced as a believer, he knows that that was wrong and he's owned it. Well, beloved, on and on the list goes of questions and scenarios. And again, there's no easy secret formula that answers all of those questions or that addresses all of those scenarios. And we often want that, but the text simply does not answer all of that. What the text does say, and his focus here, is that for a man to serve as an elder, he must be presently above reproach in his marriage relationship if he is currently married. That we know to be clear. And yet having said that, I think it's important to say this. Whatever the answer is to any of those scenarios or any of those unique circumstances, the answer must be informed and guided by the overarching quality, the all-encompassing quality of above reproach or blamelessness in the part of the potential elder. Remember, we're talking about an elder's example before the church here. So when considering a man in one or more of these scenarios, prayer and wisdom must be applied. And and I think some specific questions need to be asked as the church assesses a, a man for eldership. Such as this. What is the general perception of the church and in some cases those outside the church about this particular individual under consideration? It's important in light of 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 7, right, that he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Well, that must be assessed, and you don't go based upon one person's opinion, but the but the overall perception of this individual, and this is this is where wisdom applies and prayerful assessment and evaluation. Also, is there reason to believe that the church's witness before the unbelieving world would be maligned if he were to become an elder? I think you need to ask that question as well because the name of Christ is at stake, the integrity of the church as well, the legitimacy and the power of the gospel. I know a godly man in another church who um, is probably a man that I would point to as a man of character, a man that I would would definitely emulate many of, of just his godly patterns in his life. But many years ago, as an unbeliever, mind you, as an unbeliever, he had a destructive marriage. He was abusive to his spouse and he ended up uh, uh, committing adultery and she left him and it led to the to, to divorce. And now years later, years later, he still keeps in touch with his former wife and with her family, but the overall perception of this man then looking back at his life then, yes, as an unbeliever, is not very positive. And so as they pursued him for eldership to lead in different capacities, you know what his decision has been? Not to pursue eldership. He has chosen not to do it because of the perception of extended family on his, his, his former wife's side, neighbors, co-workers that he still works with. And so out of his own volition, he has passed on on the office. And it doesn't mean that he hasn't served in many other capacities at a high level. He has done that. And for any man in that kind of situation or other unique situations, that man can still serve in any capacity. But that given the possibility of reproach upon Christ and his church and the gospel, this man has passed on of, on being considered for eldership. Now, is there forgiveness, beloved, in that case or in the case of any person in their past, whether as unbelievers or believers? Absolutely. Amen? There's forgiveness in Christ Jesus. We have been clothed in Christ's righteousness. But oftentimes, it is the case that certain men will have to live with the consequences of their actions and their decisions made while they were unbelievers or believers in some cases. Even though there is forgiveness, God sometimes allows us to live with the consequences of our own sin. And so that applies, beloved, with the high calling of eldership in many different cases. Wisdom and grace and prayer and the church's involvement, beginning with the leaders, must be applied where the text does not give us at least direct, direct guidelines with regards to those particular cases. Well, the question then is, what does the husband of one wife mean then? And I think the literal translation of the Greek here really brings this out. Literally, verse 6, where he says, he must be the husband of one wife can be read, a one woman man He must be a one-woman man, as opposed to a ladies' man, right? What do we think of when we think about a ladies' man? It's a man whose heart is is all over the place. He's not set apart and consecrated for one woman, but he's all over the place, not devoted to one woman. The emphasis here is on the heartfelt devotion and faithfulness to his one wife. I would add this to to the exclusive covenant that the man has made before God and before the church to his one wife for better or for worse. He's devoted to that commitment before the Lord. There exists in this man's heart and life no rivals to the wife of his youth. He is devoted and faithful to her. He is exclusively faithful to her. No one else owns his heart, be it in private or in public. I love what Alexander Strzok comments regarding this quality. He says, This quality prohibits an elder from polygamy, from concubinage, from homosexuality, or any questionable sexual relationship. The candidate has an exclusive relationship with one woman. Such a man is above reproach in his sexual and marital life. End quote. Speaking of a devoted and faithful man from the heart to his one wife i think in this day and age we need to make an application a direct application to this man's use of social media right listen do you have a destructive pattern of looking at illicit sexual material on the internet or interacting with other women not your wife on social media then you are not a one woman man Do you presently look at pornography on the internet and you're living in unrepentant sin and you know that you need to confess that to the Lord and confess that to others who love you? If you, that's you and you're living in unrepentant sin in that area, you are not a one woman man. And there is forgiveness and there is hope for you, but not in secrets, secrecy. Do you make it a habit to play with fire? by openly or secretly flirting with the opposite sex. Even if your wife does not know it, or for you ladies, if your husband does not know it. If men, that is you, even if your wife does not know it, God knows it and God sees it and you are not a one woman man presently. If that is your practice, even more blatant, if you're presently considering or having an affair with another woman or, or thinking of having one, you are not a one-woman man. And that goes for you ladies as well. You know, more and more women are looking at, il- at illicit sexual material online and, and looking to online for satisfaction because of their discontent either with their husband, their boyfriends, or their potential future husbands that they don't have yet. And so they're going to the internet more and more, showing and manifesting that discontentment. So, this is an issue for women as well. Are you devoted to your husband from your heart? Do you consecrate your eyes so that you do not, you do not flirt with other men, not your husband? See, this is an issue, beloved, that touches all of our lives, does it not? Even for those of us who are married. And it's not just actions that are important. It is an issue of the heart, the condition of our hearts. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, that whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It begins with your eyes and guarding what you look at and what you are fixated upon. Because then it leads to dwelling in the mind and pampering and petting those sins in the mind, then eventually, beloved, listen, if you are not repentant, it will flesh itself out in destructive behavior and conduct that others can see. It's only a matter of time. This is why Job said in Job 31, verse 1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a young woman. So let me ask you this morning, what is the state of your heart, men and ladies? Is your heart consecrated to God and to the, and to the wife of your youth? Or are you living in unrepentant, lustful passion aimed at women or men who are not your spouse? What is the condition of your heart? This goes for single men as well. I would exhort some of you older single men who are still waiting by the grace of God for that gift of that woman that God may bring to your life. Are you a one woman man right now? Single men must also have a reputation for honorable interaction with the opposite sex. You're a one woman man if you honor the opposite sex and you hold them in high esteem in your heart, in dating relationships or on social media. You are not to be known if you're a single man waiting for the wife that God may bring to your life as a guy who just runs around messing up in relationships and exploiting other women, exploiting women, leading them on, if you will, leading their hearts astray. I would say to you, younger men, single men, young teens, or in college, you can practice being a one woman man right now. How are you cultivating a heart of devotion for your future wife right now, not later? Because I can promise you something that, that all of a sudden there's this magical thing that happens at uh, the day of the ceremony, the wedding ceremony when you, when you marry your wife. You must be cultivating a heart of devotion for the Lord and a heart of devotion for your future wife right now. Nothing magical happens on the day of the ceremony. If you, are, you have a pattern of destructive behavior now, it's going to affect your marriage. One wise man said this, Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. See, it begins in the mind. And eventually, if not kept in check, it manifests itself in your actions, destructive patterns of behavior, well into your marriage. I guarantee it. I have counseled men who have had patterns of destructive behavior before they were married, and it it affected their marriages tremendously. It doesn't just change all of a sudden. And there's hope in the gospel. And there's forgiveness before the Savior for all of us. But we need to be diligent in the power of the Spirit and by the grace of God to pursuing holiness and sanctification in these areas, beloved, for all of us. So this is a starting point for potential elders, but it applies to every single one of us. We must be above reproach in our marriages and especially for elders or those who are to be considered for the elder office. Secondly, this man must be blameless or above reproach with regard to the conduct of his children not just in his marriage, but the conduct of his children. Look at verse 6 again. It says, If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. I don't have to tell you this, but I will. I mean, there has been a lot of ink, a lot of ink wasted trying to understand what Paul is telling Titus here in verse 6. Having children who believe, having children who believe, the New American Standard, NIV and ESV translate um, that, ver- that, that phrase they're believing children as in Christian children. The King James Version or New King Jimmy or King James Version translate to faithful children as in the sense of, of uh, under submission or obedient or, or under the authority of their, of their parents in the home. And so the question is, how should it be translated? Is it Christian children? Believing children or is it faithful children? You can understand why this is such an important question to answer, right? And to uh, have an answer for. Because if it's believing children, this means that no man should be able to serve as an elder that we are not absolutely sure that his children are believers. Or... A downgraded version of this is this. Well, a man can serve as an elder as long as his kids throughout the different stages of life under the home, under the parental authority of the home, affirm the faith that has or is being passed on to them over the years, eventually manifesting saving faith, i.e. they become Christians. So which is it? Well, let me say first of all that word studies don't solve the problem alone, beloved. As critical as word studies are and as essential as they are. Because when you look at the words here, either translation is possible, uh, plausible and possible grammatically and linguistically. Either um, faithful men or a faithful per- a person or a believing person are used in various contexts. And so this is one great example here of... Uh, why we need to keep the greatest principle of Bible interpretation ever before us in every text that we study in Calvary Bible Church. I know that many a faithful pastor has preceded me. What is the greatest principle of Bible interpretation as we approach the text of Scripture? What is it? Context. Amen. Context. Context, 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 right? Context is key, and this is a perfect example here of one hard passage... Where we need to keep that in mind because at first glance, it does appear that Titus chapter 1 verse 6 is pointing to the fact that an elder's children must be Christians, that they must be believers. And yet we need to look at the immediate following context and are there other passages in God's word that that are parallel and that and that, excuse me, support a particular view or the other? Well, look at chapter 1 and verse 6. I think there is here in this verse. Namely, he says, this is the type of man you need to look for. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, and listen to this, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, I think that that clause there, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, explains, expands upon, and clarifies what, what he means by children who believe. He says that they're not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Dissipation is uh, a, being in a state of excessive indulgence, if you will, a state of lack of self control. It is used in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 4 of, of the practice of worldly sins. It is used of, of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 verse 13 who the prodigal son went off to live wildly and recklessly and disorderly with, with no fear or concern for the consequences upon his own life. That is dissipation. And it focuses on conduct. Then he says rebellion. To live in a state of disobedience or lawlessness. This is the person who does not place himself or herself under the authority of someone else. In this case, parental authority. Both of these, beloved, dissipation or rebellion, have to do with behavior or conduct. That really explains for us what he means by having children who believe, I think. And notice, in verse 6, he says, "...not accused of this type of conduct, not accused of dissipation or rebellion." Not accused means free of, of formal, a formal indictment, if you will. It is not that people are going to have opinions or there are going to be cases where there are going to be things brought forward, but that, that, that this man's children are under control and not guilty of living in a pattern of uncontrolled, unchecked, and unruly behavior. This is not speaking to the, of the fact that the children are to be perfect or sinless I like what one pastor friend of mine says. You know, the expectation oftentimes from, from people in the congregation is that an elder's children need to be First Timothy 3 qualified. That they need to match the father and be all of those First Timothy 3 things. But that is simply not the case. And so I want you to note that the emphasis in, in verse 6 is on the behavior or conduct of this man's children, by the way, plural. I love what R. Ken Hughes says about that. When he uh, comments on the fact that this is, there's a plural use of the uh, word children is in the plural and not in the singular. So that what is under evaluation is the overall makeup of this man's leadership in his home, children plural, and not just one child or isolating one child above the rest. In other words, what is the makeup of the culture of this man's leadership in his home really is the issue. And I think the parallel passage of First Timothy chapter 3, if you turn there with me, really, really supports this view here of faithful children in the sense of under control, under the authority of their parents. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4, he says regarding overseers that he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity, But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Notice how he highlights the importance of the man's leadership in his home. Because if he does not lead his home, that will be reflective of the fact that he is not capable or competent of leading in the church. We cannot miss that here. The home is a testing ground for how he is to lead in the church. But notice, what does not appear here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 4 through 5. Any statement even the statement in Titus chapter 1 verse 6 that would seem to imply that the elder to be considered his children must be Christians. That is not here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Talks about the man focuses on the man's management of his household. He is the subject, the man under consideration. He is the one who is to keep his children under control with all dignity. So the behavior and the conduct of the kids is only important in, in so long as it reflects whether he is, he is leading and managing his own household well. But there's no indication here from Paul to Timothy that in Ephesus, elders are to have believing Christian children. Is Paul being inconsistent here? Is he being partial? Is he playing favorites? He likes Timothy more than he likes Titus, right? So that he lowers the standard for the churches, uh, for for Ephesus. You don't have to have believing children, elders. But in Crete, oh yeah, make sure that you have Christian children, elders, if they are appointed to that office. I mean, this is a pretty serious issue for Paul to have left out 1 Timothy chapter 3. Well, I think the answer, beloved, is that First Timothy chapter three, verses four to five, uh, only confirms that the issue is the conduct of the man's children and the way that he leads his home. Are his children under control, under authority? You say, "Well, the other of you. Faithful children also has problems, Kempis. I mean, there's questions up, there's questions in, uh, flowing around in my head as well, and they are in my mind as well, beloved. For instance, how faithful is faithful enough if you're going to take that view? And then, how do you assess that? How do? You, what is the criteria that we use to evaluate an elder's children if they are truly submissive or under the authority of the el- of, of, um, of their of their parents, of the father? Well, again. There are no easy answers to that. Only God's wisdom and the principles of his word. The church coming alongside of that elder and the children to make sure and ensure and evaluate prayerfully and carefully that that truly this is still a characteristic in the man's life or any potential elder. So much wisdom and prayer needs to be applied to those situations because there's unique situations. Now, on the other hand, if you're going to dig in your heels and you're going to say this definitely means save children without a shadow of a doubt, it's Christian uh, Christian children. Well, then the burden of proof is upon you to answer very practical questions, such as at what point should they be saved? What is this thing called the age of accountability? Or what if the man has toddlers or babies? Does this mean he cannot serve as an elder until they verbally affirm that what they believe and that he knows without a shadow of a doubt that they are truly saved? And if the answer is a dogmatic yes, then how does one know 100% when all of his children are saved? At what point do you truly, truly know that? Does this mean you can't serve as an elder until you parent can know for certain that your kids are saved? What about this? What if one child is, is unsaved and the rest of the children are saved? What about if it's the other way around? If most of the kids are unsaved and there's one child that is saved, can he not serve as an elder? To complicate the matter, what about if, if while you're while under your roof, all of your children, if you're this potential elder, looked saved, acted saved, verbally professed to believe everything that you believe and from everything that you can think, they are saved. But when they leave your home, they walk away from the Lord and either in a, in a hostile way or in a passive way, they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus anymore and they give evidence that they were never in Christ because we don't believe in the fact that you can lose your salvation. So it means that they were never saved under your roof, which means that all of those years you were disqualified. You should not have been serving as an elder. I think you get my point. There are problems with this view that go on and on and on. So is that man's ministry all of those years discredited This validated because his kids under his roof were, he was under the, the deception that they were, that they were Christians and they were not? Well, one further compelling argument is this. Listen, all of these qualifications in Titus chapter one, verses six through nine, place the responsibility on the man to be considered who he is to be and that he is to do these things, if you will. He has to be proactive in this. And so if this is the case, then if you take the view that these are believing or Christian children, then doesn't it follow, if you're going to stay consistent with all of these qualifications, that the man is responsible for the salvation of his kids as well, since he's responsible for all the other qualities that he needs to be pursuing. Then the redemption of his kids are also in his hands as well. And yet we know, beloved, that ultimately God is the one who works in the heart of every single individual. God is the one who does the work. This is not fatalism or throwing our hands up in the air, escaping responsibility. It is just plain fact and plain biblical reality that God ultimately works in the heart. Saving faith is not in the hands of any one person, even the most faithful uh, parents. Whether you public school, by the way, or you homeschool, it doesn't matter. That doesn't guarantee your kids' salvation. Ultimately, God is the one who works in the hearts of every individual. Or are you saying that parents don't play an intricate, indispensable role in the lives of their kids? Absolutely not. We went through a series last year speaking about the importance and the, and the zeal with which every parent ought to train up his or her child in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. We are to be proactive, diligent, zealous for that, out of love for Christ and love for our children. But that is quite different than saying that our children's salvation is in our hands. Very different. So what is the meaning here? And in the parallel passage of 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 4 to 5, I think it is this. The potential elders' children are to be faithful in the sense of obedient or under submission or under parental authority while in the home. I think that's what he's aiming at here. That while those children are under your roof, which is the, the, the term that he uses, children, techna, is just a general term for offspring. While they are under your roof, they are to be under your authority. They are to manifest that and evidence that. I love what Pastor R. King Hughes writes concerning this. This rendering, meaning faithful in the sense of obedient, under submission, under parental authority while in the home. This rendering better communicates the intended meaning that our assessment must be based on observations of children's conduct and convictions over time. Not on isolated statements or actions. Paul's terminology is not so much requiring us to examine a child's professed testimony, but to evaluate whether the child, in a manner appropriate for his age, is exhibiting evidence of consistent biblical discipline and spiritual nurture in the home. End quote. I agree with him. I think under scrutiny is more the man, the potential elder, and his leadership in the home and obviously as reflected in the behavior of the children so as you we assess individuals to potentially be appointed for eldership we have to ask some tough questions is is this a man who exercises his god-given authority to love correct discipline and engage his children is he a man who who obeys uh, Ephesians chapter 6 that he trains up his children in the discipline and admonition of the lord he brings them up in the lord Points him to the gospel. Does he require, teach, require, and enforce obedience? Does he shepherd proactively, and he doesn't abdicate his responsibility to to other people in the church? Some of you are doing that, frankly. You're not engaging your own kids, men. You're not training up your own kids. You're not you're not engaging the, uh, them with the gospel, but you chuck it off, chuck them off to the church as if the church is to solve all of their problems. That is not what God calls us to. Your responsibility is, first and foremost, is to train up your kids, not the churches. The church comes alongside of you and partners with you to support and affirm that which you are doing faithfully already. Does this man uphold the word of God and the standard of God's word in the home? Because if he can't do that there and he doesn't do that there faithfully, then why should we expect him to do that in the church? That he's going to be faithful to uphold the truth of the Word of God in the church. Listen, as Paul begins to give these instructions about qualifications for elders, we need to be reminded of these sobering realities, beloved. That all true spiritual leadership begins in the home. That the elder must first of all be above reproach or blameless with regards to his family life, his marriage, the conduct of his children. This is weighty, isn't it? It's weighty for me. As I've worked through this text in the last few weeks, I'll tell you that. I'm an elder, and I feel such a privilege to do that. But I understand, I understand that you as a church and the elders, uh, first and foremost, um, I'm under scrutiny continually. And you know what? It comes with the territory. And I'm thankful for that. And that goes for all of our elders. And that goes for any future elders here at our church. This is the word of God. God. And we need to obey it and follow it. Otherwise we won't be blessed as a congregation. So you know what this drives me to do and why I, what, what I think it drives all of us as a church to do? To be prayerful, beloved. To be bringing the leaders before the Lord and be praying for us and for our families. To be praying that God would raise up a new generation of, of future elders in this, in this church who right now are already exhibiting love and shepherding of their home and their families. You need to be praying for that. It's all of our job to be training up the future leader. So affirm the the strengthening of the home and of a father leading and shepherding his family, you see. And ultimately, that's where potentially future elders will come from. As leadership goes, so does the church. Amen? As leadership goes, so does the church. And may God help us, beloved, to be faithful to what he calls us to hear. All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, these are weighty things. And yet, Lord, we celebrate the amazing blueprint that you have given to us. We don't need to be fearful. We don't need to shy away from your truth. We need to, Lord, open up your word and be instructed by you, by you who are our gracious God, who gives us these instructions and exhortations for our good and for your glory and for the good of your people. Help us to be obedient, Lord. Help all of us that we would be a church that would um, affirm and uphold these truths here for leadership. That we would be a church that supports the family infrastructure, which makes up a strong church. Father, I pray that we might be that type of a church. Lord, thank you for the impact that you have used this church to have all over our country and all over the world, and that you will continue to use us to have As we are faithful to your holy scriptures, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.